Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Darren Wills, Managing Director, APAC, Head of Fixed Income, iShares and Institutional Index at BlackRock. So Darren, I thought the first question we should kick off with today is to talk about the evolution of the bond market, specifically from the time of the GFC. We're we're now 12 years past since then, a lot's happened. I wanted to get your uh, understanding of what's changed um, and some background on, on what we're seeing in the bond market today. Absolutely. So I think there's a couple of key themes to cover here. So even before the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, um, growth in the corporate bond markets globally was outstripping GDP growth. So corporate bond financing as a proportion of corporate financing um, was already growing strongly. Um, What we saw during the global financial crisis in the period um, directly after that was as banks delevered post-crisis, corporate bond financing accelerated as a substitute for bank lending, especially for non-financial firms. So if you look at the overall size of the corporate bond markets at the moment, you know, broadly speaking, the amount of index eligible corporate debt in the US corporate bond market has doubled since the global financial crisis to about seven and a half trillion. In Europe, we've seen similar figures in terms of the growth, albeit from a lower base, about a doubling since the uh, onset of the financial crisis to around 2.75 trillion. So that's really the picture in the uh, in the corporate bond market. It's a shift from bank financing um, to financing in the public debt markets as bank lending retrenched um, during that deleveraging period post-financial crisis. So more specifically about the sort of issuers that we're seeing, are we seeing a broader base of issuers or just larger larger issue, or larger issuance from a number of key uh, companies? So alongside growth in the overall size of the markets, as we just mentioned, we've also seen an associated growth in the number of issuers as well as the total number of bonds outstanding. So again, thinking back to that post-crisis period, um, in the US market, we've probably seen a 30 to 40% in the diversity of the issuer base. So we're looking at you know 1,200 issuers from where previously we had about 800. Um, and in the euro market, similar concept. So um, in the European market, we're now over 700 issuers in terms of um, broad European indices from about 400 in that post-crisis period. And then from a diversification of risk perspective, very similar theme. So the um, the concentration um, of names within that index has also reduced correspondingly during that period. So in the US, you know, the top ten issuers post crisis was probably around nineteen to twenty percent. That's gone down to about thirteen percent. Again, very similar figures in the European market. Those top 10 issuers were at about 17% and have moved down to about 13%. I think the also interesting thing to mention is also a shift from um, the top issuers being concentrated in financial services firms. And if we think back to why that was, and we think about the leverage that banks um, had pre-financial crisis and then that deleveraging period post-financial crisis, we've also seen a material shift in terms of the makeup and the concentration in the indices from financial firms to non-financial firms. 
It's it's interesting you say that, and uh, obviously uh, for financial firms, the access to bond markets has got a lot easier for them. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of uh, demand for these types of issuance just because low, there's lower and lower interest rates. So the ability to take advantage of the bond market and these opportunities has become uh, you know, one of one of the easiest ways to find some returns in this space. You know, do you do you feel that given that interest rates have gone lower, that you know the the, the amount of issuance that you'll see in this space will increase, or always likely to decrease? I mean, I think the uh, the two are linked to some degree. Um, so the fact that all types of financial investors um, have been essentially. Um, forced to move out um, in the risk spectrum to actually um, generate some income or to generate additional yield in their portfolios has led to a greater demand for for corporate debt generally. On the flip side of that, you know, um, corporates are not going to issue if they don't have financing needs. Um, so it's a combination of the two. So on one side, you see greater demand from investors for corporate debt. Um, on the flip side, you know, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the reduction in bank financing has meant that increasingly corporates are using the public debt markets to access that same bond financing. Is it fair then to say that, you know, given the need for, for fixed interest style products um, for these portfolios, that you're seeing potentially lower liquidity as people are buying and holding these assets? I think generally no. So I think, you know, as the, as the fixed income markets have developed, and as a greater range of investors have moved into the corporate bond space, and as we're seeing in terms of the modernization of the bond market, we've seen that the way that financial firms actually trade and price fixed income securities, then generally speaking, I would say that that greater investor base with more investors looking at that segment of the market means that there's generally more transparency, there's more flow going backwards and forwards. So I wouldn't say that um, that's necessarily corresponded with a drop in liquidity. I think one of the things that we saw coming out of the financial crisis, you know, and again, thinking back to that pre-crisis market, pre-crisis market was characterized by a greater risk-taking capacity, uh, larger balance sheets for risk warehousing and lower funding and capital costs for, for banks. Um, Post-crisis, uh, regulatory oversight was enhanced, balance sheet capacity was significantly reduced due to those regulatory changes and funding and capital costs increasing. And banks' operating models are rationalized accordingly. So banks and broker-dealers shifted away from a primarily principal-based trading to more of a hybrid model consisting of both principal and agency trading, with an increased reliance on electronic trading and auto platforms. Yeah, look, it, it's an interesting piece. What, why I was asking the question is that there isn't, there's, there is issuance out there, but there are some key uh, bonds that people want to hold, and so it was just a matter of whether you're seeing a lower trading or a lower trading volume. There's still liquidity there, but there's a lower trading volume because people are choosing to hold on to these securities for longer. And Anne, I, I would say that generally speaking, and again, there are some uh, nuances between different markets, but generally what we've seen in the trading and liquidity environment post the financial crisis is, and again, due to that change in liquidity model between that proprietary trading and that more all-to-all or, or algorithmic or electronic trading is actually the breadth of trading has increased while the average ticket size has actually reduced. So what we've seen is there's a greater number of issuers in the market, there's a greater number of bonds in the market. Um, but when investors are shifting risk around in the fixed income markets, they're tending to trade a large 
a number of line items. So where previously they may have moved risks with a more concentrated portfolio of large single line items, the immediacy of risk transfer due to that change in, in liquidity model has reduced. So we increasingly see investors using you know, uh, larger lists of bonds of smaller sizes to be able to shift risk effectively. I'm curious, you know, when you think about some of these larger investors, are they doing the individual bond trading more and more? Are you seeing that happen or are they choosing to buy an ETF effectively as as the way to get access much more quickly? I think it's a mixture of both. So I think, um, you know, and again, if you look if you look back to probably pre-crisis, um, opportunities to invest in fixed income securities were really limited to all but the very sophisticated investors. The emergence of ETFs amongst other index vehicles has changed that and brought some, some democracy to the fixed income market. Now, this works in a number of different ways. So first of all, investors who would have traditionally only had the ability to access fixed income through perhaps purchasing an active mutual fund, and then the active mutual fund manager would have done the asset allocation within the fixed income market for them by allocating between different parts of the market, are able to effectively do that themselves. So whether that's global insurers, whether that's central banks, whether that's official institutions or multi-asset funds, they now have the ability to um, allocate between different parts of the fixed income market using precision instruments such as fixed income ETFs. And on the flip side of that, you know, even within active mutual fund managers' portfolios, you know, they are now able to access different parts of the fixed income market, which they might not necessarily have the in-house expertise to do. So accessing parts of the market which haven't been part of their traditional benchmarks, such as high yield or emerging markets, or increasingly parts of the market like onshore China, ETFs are giving them ability to do that within their traditional portfolios without necessarily having to build out the in-house capability, the trading function, fundamental analysts, where they might have had to do that before. I'm curious, you know, we've got now this development of ETFs that are coming into this market. You're almost democratizing this over-the-counter market. You know, what impact have ETFs had on the underlying market? You know, the ETF wrapper has has essentially taken a largely um, off-exchange, OTC-driven asset class. Um, and it's democratized both the, the, the access to those parts of the bond market, but also price discovery. And really, it's those two things that I'd point to in terms of that democratization or modernization that we talk about. Really, price transparency underpins the efficiency and fairness of all financial markets. Transparent markets promote more efficient and cost-effective trading. They promote higher levels of investor confidence and participation. So again, you know, even when you know, in my former role, I was managing underlying fixed income portfolios, um, you know, when investors look to see where a particular market is trading, previously they would have relied on quotes directly from market makers or banks to get some kind of indication of what was going on in underlying fixed income markets, or they would have used synthetic instruments such as CDS indices to actually get a gauge of what was happening from a credit risk or, or, or rates risk perspective. You know, move forward to, to, to where we see things currently and all types of investors. And again, whether that's um, institutional investors, whether that's retail investors, whether that's fixed income bond buyers are using fixed income ETFs to get a gauge of what is going on in the underlying bond market. And if you know where risk is being transferred, it gives you greater confidence when you actually come to move risk in that market. 
So, you know, when we talk about the ETF market, you, you've alluded to it a little bit now that there are some very um, unique parts of the ETF. There's not just one general ETF. There, there's some quite uh, sector-specific types ETFs, different types of investment grade, high yield, emerging markets. You know, are you seeing different impacts in terms of the structure of the market in these different parts of the market due to the ETF um, development? I think one of the um, you know one of the key characteristics of, of of the ETF is the fact that you know you're taking essentially uh, an index fund uh, and you're wrapping it in an ETF and, and allowing investors to to trade it on the exchange. And one of the main advantages of that is um, if investors are all looking at the same beta instrument for a particular part of the market then you get a lot of different types of investors doing things at different times. So you may have retail investors trading, you may have institutional investors trading, um, and you may have banks and market makers using ETFs to manage their overall risk um, on their balance sheet and versus other beta type instruments such as TRS, such as CDS indices and futures. So once you get that greater volume going on at the wrapper level, um, what you tend to find is that investors can meet at that wrapper level and transfer risk without necessarily having to trade the underlying bond market. And what that means is, is that if investors can meet at that wrapper level and transfer risk without having to buy or sell bonds, then what that's going to happen is that it's going to um, cause a narrowing of transaction costs and spreads compared to what you would typically experience on the underlying market. So one of the key advantages of the ETF wrapper in itself, and just to use an example of high yield, for example, you know, if you look at European or dollar high yield markets, the bid ask spread on the underlying tends to be around 40 or 50 basis points based on my experience. But at the wrapper level, you know, investors can actually substantially reduce their transaction costs by transferring risk in these products and bid ask spreads can be as tight as a couple of basis points. So really, one of the areas where, you know, we talk about that democratization, when we talk about that modernization of the bond market, we talk about these instruments being um, another tool in the toolkit for investors to transfer risk effectively. One of the advantages of the ETF wrapper is that can be done generally a lot cheaper than having to trade the underlying bond market. You mentioned there about the ability for investors to transfer risk between each other without affecting the underlying. At what point does the underlying start to be affected by flows in, in particularly, for example, like the high yield space or the emerging market debt space where access to these underlying bonds is quite difficult, but the ETF then is, is quite easy, obviously, to invest in? So the two are inextricably linked, and they're inextricably linked because the ETF mechanism allows uh, market participants to effectively transfer risk between the underlying bond market and the ETF on a daily basis. So at any time, if the ETF becomes dislocated from where risk is actually transferring on the underlying bond market, then market makers and banks have the um, opportunity and the incentive to step in to actually arbitrage away that, that difference between where they can buy and sell the ETF versus where they can actually buy and sell a basket of bonds on the underlying market. So that's what that's the mechanism that really keeps the ETF trading um, in line with the, the, the risk transfer in the underlying market. Now, you know, what we've seen, and not just over the past six months, but over the period since the financial crisis, is as fixed income ETFs have increased in size, as more and more investors have started using ETFs to express their view on a variety of different parts of the bond market, that those volumes, those secondary market volumes, those on-exchange volumes have increased relative to the underlying market. So we see actually um, ETFs and fixed income ETFs in particular to be additive to fixed income market liquidity and to actually take pressure 
um, off the underlying market in periods of volatility. Now, having said that, you know, that inextricable link that I was talking about, if you do see directional flow, some of that activity in the end is going to lead to either creations or redemptions feeding through into the underlying bond market, at which point market participants will buy ETF units from investors. Um, and if they can't find the other side of the trade as an investor looking to buy on the other side, then we'll, they will look to cancel those units by selling bonds in the underlying market. So, you know, what I would say and the key points to mention are, look, the volumes will tell you that that secondary to primary market ratio, that ETFs are adding additional liquidity to the markets. But at the same time, we realize that the two are linked. And if there is selling pressure and buying pressure on particular parts of the market, in the end, that is likely to feed through to buying or selling pressure on the underlying bond market. You, you mentioned there a little bit about the underlying pressure on the bond market. We can't not talk about the current COVID crisis um, and the sell down, particularly in March. I would, I'm curious to get your thoughts or your some background on what's actually happened in the ETF market, particularly around that period. You know, what specifically did you see? Did we see any potential gapping down in prices during that period? Yeah, so again, talking about that period in March and, you know, having talked to some of my colleagues who were uh, managing risk in the underlying bond market, I managed fixed income portfolios through the global financial crisis. And that was that was a pretty, pretty extreme period in terms of underlying bond market liquidity. But all the indicators that we have is that the underlying bond market was even worse from a liquidity and functionality perspective than we saw during the global financial crisis. And again, thinking back to what we talked about in terms of that balance sheet, so that ability of um, financial institutions to warehouse risk, that really wasn't a surprise to me in the sense that if we saw significant selling pressure across fixed income markets, then those balance sheets were going to get full up pretty quickly and therefore prices were likely to gap lower and markets were likely to become increasingly dysfunctional. So in terms of ETFs, so one of the things, and again, an advantage I would say from an investor perspective and in terms of the market as a whole, is that ETFs are very transparent. Like you can see flows going through on ETFs on a daily basis. The data is freely available. And as we discussed, you can see where ETFs are trading at any point during the day because you can see those thousands of trades going through um, on an intraday basis. And reporting or trade reporting the underlying bond market is better than it was. So we have Trace in the US where all bond trades have to report it on a, on a post-trace basis. Um, MIFID in, in Europe is helping in terms of those, again, those bond trades are reported now, but on a delayed basis. But the ETF really is the only um, instrument where you get live, up-to-date view of where risk is being transferred in a particular market. So what we saw was, was outflows starting to happen in the riskier or higher beta parts of the market. So, you know, when we started hearing about the effects of COVID, we started hearing about, you know, shutdowns happening in, in various economies around the world, then investors looked to take risk off in their portfolios quite naturally. And first of all, that happened in the higher beta parts of the market. So specifically here, I'm talking about investment grade credit, high yield credit and emerging markets. But actually, it quickly fed through into other parts of the fixed income market. So short duration credit, mortgage-backed securities, and indeed, there was significant dislocation even in the U.S. Treasury market, which we usually would rate, would look at as the most liquid and deep market in the world. So even in the U.S. Treasury market, people were finding it difficult to know where the off-the-run bonds were pricing and bid-ask spreads had widened significantly. So ETF flows were uh, effectively a, a canary in the in, in the gold mine in terms of 
investors realizing where risk was actually being transferred, where underlying markets were actually trading. Now, the, the flows on ETFs, as we talked about, are transparent, but that doesn't mean that selling pressure isn't happening across all kinds of other financial instruments. I mean, ETFs in themselves, you know, the current number stands at about 1.3 trillion in terms of fixed income ETFs. The fixed income market is over, uh, over 100 trillion in size. So fixed income ETFs is still a relatively small proportion of the market. Active mutual funds, probably around 12% of the market. And as that data came through, that fund flow data came through on a delayed basis, um, what we came to realize is, is that outflows were happening across all parts of the fixed income market. And actually, outflows from active mutual funds and other index funds dwarfed what was happening on ETFs themselves. So we were really seeing broad selling pressure and broad de-risking across all parts of the fixed income market, not just limited to ETFs. Do you have any empirical data on what maybe drives some of that repricing or that dislocation? Is it the underlying that's maybe moving faster and then repricing with the ETF or the ETF fund flow is then ultimately having a, an impact on the underlying? Um, I think ETFs tend to lead the market because they're more transparent and that's where risk is being, being transferred. So again, if you look back at that period in March um, and we saw that, that selling pressure coming through, and those prices gapping downwards in the ETF space, um, then that tend to happen faster than those, you know, NAV marks or index marks that are used to price the NAV of both the ETF and, you know, the rest of the, the bond mutual fund market. So the ETF was being priced on a live basis. And effectively, that was giving a leading indicator of where, you know, certain bonds were trading in the underlying market and where risk was being transferred between investors. Now, NAV marks or index marks, you know, and, and we, we have to understand that um, there are thousands and thousands of underlying line items in the bond markets. You know, just to take an example, the global aggregate has 25,000 line items. Um, even the US corporate bond market has eight to 9,000 line items. Many of those won't trade on a daily basis. Um, many of those won't even trade on a monthly basis. So index providers and fund administrators will try and work out where they think those NAV marks should be using where they can see actual trades going through and then making some kind of assumption as to where other bonds may or may not be valued. Again, you look at the ETF, and effectively what market makers, what banks, what investors are doing is pricing that basket risk on a live basis. So to take an example, in the worst part of the volatility in the sell-off that we saw, which was around mid-March, some of our US corporate bond ETFs were trading at about a 5-6% discount to their official end-of-day NAV. And um, you know, you can make arguments either way about, you know, where you see valuations, but the reality is, is that those ETFs were trading. Um, the underlying bond markets were not trading. If you step forward even one or two days, those actual discounts to NAV had normalized to some extent. But it was the NAV that had come down to the same level as the ETF had trading at one or two days previously, uh, not the other way around in the ETF being mispriced and then reacting back to where those NAV um, or index prices were. Let's go into that that pricing differential a little bit more. That dislocation. You know, we've we've had some change in the market in the sense that there isn't as much uh, proprietary trading. Banks don't have that ability to arbitrage as much. You know, we still do have a lot of ag algorithmic traders that can take advantage of that differential. In these sorts of crisis environments, how do you make sure that that arbitrage process still still works? Obviously, you mentioned there's a, there was a slight differential, but how do you pull those two together in these in these types of environments? 
I mean, look, the first thing to mention is premiums and discounts are a natural function of a market where the underlying has a bid ask spread. So, you know, even in in um, in the period since the financial crisis, we've seen periods where fixed income ETFs have seen significant premiums or discounts versus their end of day NAV. One example I can give you is when the ECB um, announced their bond buying program and their corporate bond buying program in particular coming out of the sovereign debt crisis is that at that point in time, we saw uh, European high yield and European investment grade ETFs trading at between two and three percent premiums to NAV as investors look to put corporate bond risk on in their portfolios. Um, those prices on the ETFs adjusted higher and the underlying NAVs and index prices lagged and caught up over time. Um, the same is true of this period. So um, investors were trading the fixed income ETF at the wrapper level because they found that an easier way to transfer risk and to get liquidity. And they understood that that was giving transparency into where underlying markets were trading. The underlying bond market in itself, you know, as I mentioned earlier, was severely dislocated. Um, it was very hard to transfer risk on a single line item basis. Um, having said that, you know the ETF market still functioned as as intended, and market makers were still able to buy and sell ETF units and to create and redeem ETFs all throughout that period. Um, the fact that those premiums or discounts remained in place is not necessarily a breakdown of the arbitrage mechanism. It's a breakdown of the index or NAV pricing versus where actually bonds were trading in the market versus where ETFs were trading in the market. So it's important to make that differential. You mentioned a little bit about the the bond buying programs that were started. We also saw the same impact of the Fed and Treasury support programs in the US. I wanted to get your comments on on how that potentially supported the bond market and indirectly maybe the ETF um, space as well. Yeah, so I think firstly the important thing to make clear, you know, as I as I do work at BlackRock, is that the mandate that BlackRock has with the Federal Reserve is managed in a completely separate part of the business. Um, it's part of our financial markets advisory function, which sits behind an information barrier. Um, so I'm happy to give my thoughts around the impact of the program, and I certainly will. But just to make it clear that I don't have any additional information regarding the program specifics, more than what's been publicly made available by the Federal Reserve. So let's talk about that period. So again, we'd stepped into a world where um, equity markets were in free fall, uh, where economies were shutting down across the globe, and investors really didn't know how to price risk, right? No one knew how to price risk effectively. So people were de-risking portfolios. And there was a degree of panic in the market. Um, there was a degree of panic in the market in that people, you know, Start of all, um, tried to de-risk their equity portfolios, found out that equities were 30 40% off their highs, then looked around for other parts of the market where they could de-risk their portfolios. We talked about the impact that had on emerging markets, on high-yield bonds and corporate bonds. And then investors started to sell anything that they could sell. So that uh, selling pressure went through into all parts of the fixed income market, including short-duration corporate bonds. So we found ourselves in a situation where markets were in free fall, and more importantly, the corporate debt markets were not functioning. So you know, corporates could not finance themselves in the public debt markets. So clearly, something needed to be done. So what the Fed announced on, I believe, the 23rd of March was an array of programs in conjunction with the Treasury Department that actually went above and beyond what we saw during the financial crisis, most notably unveiling a facility to buy corporate bonds and ETFs tracking that underlying market. 
Now, one of the things you would see is that in the seven or so weeks that followed, credit spreads tightened materially across the globe. And we saw actually a record amount of issuance back into the corporate bond markets. And all of that happened without the Fed buying a single corporate bond or a single ETF. So seven weeks later, they had actually done nothing. And the markets had normalized to some degree, selling pressure had abated, and the corporate bond markets had opened back up to companies financing themselves, which was exactly the impact that I think the Fed wanted to have. Um, and, and again, the Fed made clear in their public announcements that the facility was intended to support orderly pricing, present, prevent market dysfunction, and, and prevent fire, fire sales, um, not necessarily using the facility for spread suppression. Now, I think this is an important thing to mention because this is a big difference between the Fed's program and the ECB's program. So ECB have been buying corporate bonds for a number of years now. And actually, the size of their corporate bond buying program dwarfs in terms of overall size and in terms of a proportion of the underlying corporate bond market, what the Fed is doing. And they're explicitly trying to suppress spreads to make it cheaper for companies to finance themselves, but also to essentially crowd investors out of the lower risk parts of the market and actually help companies finance themselves and actually for investors in to move into higher risk parts of the market to help the economy get started post-financial crisis. That's very different from what, from what the Fed had announced. So moving forward, where are we as we currently stand? So as of, I think, the end of July, Fed had bought approximately 9 billion of fixed income ETFs and probably around 4 billion of individual bonds. Put that in context, year to date, inflows on fixed income ETFs from both iShares and competitors are around 180 billion. And if you look at the impact on the underlying bond markets, a single issuer can easily issue 10 billion in one day. And in fact, we've seen issuance across March and April, you know, running in the 250 to 300 billion range. So again, when you look at the impact that the Fed has had, it's really the, the rhetoric. It's the, it's the confidence it gives to corporate bond investors that there is a buyer of last resort, that the Fed does have the ability to step into the market to support financing for companies and to support uh, the functioning of orderly markets. But that's really, you know, knowing that the Fed is going to be there, I would say, rather than the actual actions of the Fed itself in terms of the volume of ETFs and underlying bonds that they've bought. So, you know, that old adage continues to be true, don't fight the Fed. So, so that's really the reaction that we've seen since that that announcement in 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 mid-March. I'm curious around the the ETF market in the sense that given that ETFs have democratized the the fixed income, you know, bond issuer space, has that actually supported more issuance coming to the market because that there is this support through ETFs? Um, of, of late? Again, I think you could argue that on a marginal basis, based on ETFs being an increased share of overall fixed income bond markets, um, albeit as we discussed before from a very low base. But the reality is, and again, we talked about that number, fixed income ETFs being 1% to 2% of the overall fixed income market, active mutual funds being around 11 to 12%. Uh, the rest of the fixed income market being held by a range of other investors, and whether that's central banks, whether that's insurers, whether that's pension funds. So, you know, as ETFs continue to become a greater proportion of the underlying market, then yes, they will help to support and buy issuance directly from um, corporates. 
Um, but I would say based on the relative sizes of the markets, they're, they're not at the moment probably going to be a key driver of whether that issuance gets done or not. The reason I asked the question was that these parts of the market are often, particularly the high yield, it's the marginal buyers and sellers that are uh, moving the market. So my question was around the ETF space specifically, given that it's, it makes access so much easier um, for investors that ultimately then it helps flow into providing liquidity to the underlying issuers in that space. I mean, that's, that's certainly, again, true to agree. But again, I, I, I will point back to the fact that you know one of the one of the common um, arguments that you hear from certain market participants is that um, you know fixed income ETFs um, to a degree have encouraged um, you know tourists into certain parts of the market where they might have not invested in emerging markets or high yield um, or other parts of the fixed income market before. Um, we don't really think that to be the case, and the evidence doesn't support that. Um, you know, when investors, whether that, again, that is central banks, um, whether that's um, insurers, whether that's asset managers, you know, previous to fixed income ETFs being part of the market, um, part of the market infrastructure, you know, they would have still accessed those markets. They would have just accessed them through different vehicles. Traditionally, they would have accessed them through buying single line items or they would have accessed them through active mutual funds. So we don't necessarily think that, you know, this has caused a increase in, in so-called tourist investors. We just think that, you know, alongside those direct bond investments and alongside those investments into active mutual funds, um, all kinds of investors now have the opportunity to use the fixed income ETF if it so meets their, their investment objectives in terms of accessing that, that, that market. The other thing that I think is, again, it, it, important to note is that, you know, certain parts of the market think that, you know, still in some degree think that somehow the fixed income ETF or the ETF wrapper in itself is, is a retail instrument that's only really used by individual investors who um, are, are, are buying and selling or, 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 or trying to make money from short term trades in these in these various markets. Um, that's simply not the case. So, you know, even where we have the greatest penetration of, of retail into the fixed income ETF, which is the US, um, over 50% of that market is still um, institutional investors. Um, in Europe, actually, the proportion of institutional versus retail is really dominated by institutional investors. So we still think over 80% of that market um, is, is institutional in nature. And when you move into the APAC market, that, that figure is even higher um, based on, you know, different, different types of regulatory change. You know, we've seen, um, you know, um, regulatory change in the US and, and, and Europe actually um, encourage um, all types of investors to use more, more index products, um, to use, use lower cost products and to move more towards a fee-based advisory model. Um, in Asia Pacific, you know, the, 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 the retail investor base still tends to be uh, dominated by, you know, retrocession or commission-based models. And therefore, the incentive to use index or, or, or ETF vehicles is still lower. So in APAC, again, the market is really dominated by institutional investors. So again, what, what does that mean from a, uh, from a flow perspective or pressure, selling or buying pressure on the underlying market? Again, perception would be that if people see... Um, or if individual investors see markets going down, that they're going to suddenly rush to the exit um, and actually, you know, compound that selling pressure and cause that vicious cycle 
um, that has been touted in terms of people seeing selling pressure and then deciding to sell their own investments. Actually, again, what we saw in the really in the recent period of volatility, it was mostly in, uh, institutional investors that were um, adjusting risk in their portfolios and were selling risk. Um, from what we can see is that retail investors were actually relatively stable, and if anything, we're actually looking at the dislocation in the markets to to add risk, um, to actually use it as a good entry point to add risk to their portfolios rather than um, rather than 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 selling. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Darren. Thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.